Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 8 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Catherine of Valois, Chapter 1, Part 2. Notwithstanding the King of France was very much indisposed, he and Queen Isabeau, the Princess, the Duke of Burgundy, and his council, escorted by a thousand combatants, went to the place of conference near Maloon, and entered the tents without the enclosure. Then the King of England arrived, attended by his brothers, the Dukes of Clarence and Gloucester, and a thousand men-at-arms, he entered the tent pitched for him, and when they were about to commence the conference, the queen on the right hand, followed by the lady Catherine, entered the enclosure. At the same time, the king of England, with his brothers and council, arrived on this neutral ground by another barrier, and with a most respectful obeisance, met and saluted Queen Isabeau, and then King Henry not only kissed her, but the lady Catherine. They entered the tent pitched for the conference, King Henry leading Queen Isabeau. Henry seated himself opposite to Catherine, and gazed at her most intently, while the Earl of Warwick was making a long harangue in French, which he spoke very well. After they had remained some time in conference, they separated, taking the most respectful leave of each other. This barrier scene is evidently meant to be depicted by the celebrated ancient painting, once in the possession of Horace Walpole. Henry Seventh had this picture painted for his chapel at Sheen, and, as the well-known likeness of Henry V is striking, there is reason to believe the same care was taken in portraying the features of Catherine of Valois. The oval shape of her face, her clear ivory complexion, and large dark eyes, coincide with the descriptions of the old French chroniclers. Catherine's chin was too short, or the face would be perfect. The expression is inane and passionless. She wears an arched crown, and a species of veil, trimmed at each side with ermine, and reaching to the shoulders. Her mantle, of the regal form, is worn over a close gown, tight to the throat. A strap of ermine passes down the front, and is studded with jewels. Three weeks afterwards, all the royal personages, with the exception of the Lady Catherine, met for another conference at the barrier ground upon Toise. As the view of Catherine's beauty had not induced Henry to lower his demands, Queen Isabeau resolved that the English conqueror should see her no more. Henry was exceedingly discontented at this arrangement. For, says Monstrelet, the princess was very handsome, and had some engaging manners, and it was plainly to be seen that King Henry was desperately in love with her. Yet the second conference ended, without the least abatement in his exorbitant requisitions. After the English hero had waited unavailingly a few days, 
in hopes of being courted by the family of his beloved, he impatiently demanded a third interview, meaning to modify his demands. When lo, to his infinite displeasure, when he arrived at Pontoise, he found the tents struck, the barriers pulled down, and the pails that marked out the neutral ground taken away, everything showing that the marriage treaty was supposed to be ended. Henry V was infuriated at the sight, and in his transports betrayed how much he had become enamored of Catherine. He turned angrily to the Duke of Burgundy, who was the only person belonging to the royal family of France, attending the conference, and said abruptly, Fair cousin, we wish you to know that we will have the daughter of your king, or we will drive him and you out of his kingdom. The Duke replied, Sire, you are pleased to say so, but before you have succeeded in driving my lord and me out of this kingdom, I make no doubt that you will be heartily tired. Many high words passed, too tedious to report, and, taking leave of each other, they separated, and each went his way. Before two years had elapsed, the family of Catherine were forced by dire distress to sue for the renewal of the marriage treaty. Henry's career of conquest proceeded with terrific rapidity. He made himself master of most of the towns between Normandy and the French capital, while his brother, the Duke of Clarence, and his friend, the Earl of March, had already thundered at the gates of Paris. Henry was requested to name his own terms of pacification. He haughtily replied that he had been deceived and baffled so many times that he would treat with no one but the Princess Catherine herself, whose innocency, he was sure, would not try to deceive him. Notice of this speech being immediately conveyed to Queen Isabeau, she made the Bishop of Arras return instantly to tell King Henry that if he could come to Tra, Catherine would espouse him there, and that as her inheritance he should have the crown of France after the death of King Charles. And to gain the more credit, the Bishop of Arras secretly delivered to the King a love letter written by the fair hand of Catherine herself, so full of sweetness, that Henry V considered his happiness as certain. The English monarch was now to receive, with the hand of Catherine, not only the provinces he had demanded, but the reversion of the whole sovereignty of France, with immediate possession, under the name of regent. By this treaty the elder sisters and the only brother of Catherine were to be disinherited. As soon as these terms were agreed upon, Henry, accompanied by his brothers, Clarence and Gloucester, with 1,600 combatants, mostly archers, advanced to Troyes, where he arrived on the 20th of May, 1420. The new Duke of Burgundy, clothed in the deepest mourning for his murdered sire, met Henry at a little distance from Troyes, and conducted him in great pomp to the Hotel de Ville, where lodgings were prepared for him. When Henry was presented the next day to Catherine, who was with her mother, enthroned in the church of Notre Dame, he was attired in a magnificent suit of burnished armor, but, instead of a plume, he wore in his helmet a fox-tail, ornamented with precious stones. It must be owned that the warrior king of England, now and then, indulged in a few whims regarding dress. Henry conducted the princess and her mother up to the high altar, and there the articles of peace were read. Queen Isabeau and Catherine apologized for the non-attendance of King Charles the Sixth on account of his infirm health, saying, that the king was ill-disposed. 
the unfortunate father of Catherine, could not go through the scene, which apparently annihilated the hopes of his young heir. But the Duke of Burgundy officiated as the deputy of his royal kinsman, and the important treaty was signed. The betrothment of Henry and Catherine instantly followed, and, when the English monarch received Catherine's promise, he placed on her finger a ring of inestimable value, supposed to be the same worn by our English queen consorts at their coronation. After the conclusion of the ceremony, Henry presented to his betrothed bride, his favorite knight, Sir Louis de Robsart, to whom he committed the defense of her person, and the office of guarding her while in France. The real meaning of this ceremony was, that Henry V took the princess into his own custody after betrothment, and would retain her by force, if her family had changed their minds regarding his marriage. Catherine was now his property, and it was the duty of Sir Louis de Robsart to guard the safekeeping of that property. Henry himself announced the peace and betrothment in a letter addressed to his council of regency, the Duke of Gloucester being just appointed regent of England. Right trusty and beloved brother, right worshipful fathers in God, and trusty and well-beloved, for as much that we wot well that your desires were to hear joyful tidings of our good speed. We signify to you, worship be our God, that of our labor hath sent us good conclusion. Upon Monday, the twentieth day of this May, we arrived at this town of Tra, and on the morrow, hadn't a convention betwixt our mother, the Queen of France, and our brother, the Duke of Bourgogne, as commissaires of the King of France, our father, for his parti, and us in our own person for our own parti, sighed. And the accord of peace perpetual was there sworn, by both the said commissioners in the name of our aforesaid father, and assembly by us in our own name, and the letters thereupon forthwith and sealed, under the great seal of our said father, to us word, and under ours, to him word, the copy of which letter we send you enclosed in this. Also, at the said convention, was marriage betrothed betwixt us and our wife, daughter of our aforesaid father, the king of France. The treaty of peace, which the king declares is enclosed in his letter, is addressed to his vice-counts of London. Some extracts are of a curious nature. It is, says Henry, accorded between our father of France and us, that forasmuch as by the bond of matrimony made for the good of peace between us and our dear and most beloved Catherine, the daughter of our said father and our most dear mother, Isabel, his wife, the said Charles and Isabel, be made our father and mother. Therefore them, as our father and mother, we shall have and worship, as it fitteth such and so worthy a prince and princess to be worshipped, before all other temporal persons of this world. Also that the said Catherine shall take and have dower in our realm of England, as queens of England, hitherward were wont to take and have. That is to say, to the sum of forty thousand scutes, crowns, by the year, of the which twain algates, always, shall be worth a noble English money. Also if it happen that the said Catherine shall outlive us, she shall take in the realm of France, immediately from our death, 20,000 francs yearly. 
also that after the death of our said father, and from thenceforward, the crown and realm of France, with all their rights and appurtenances, shall remain, and abide, and be of us and of our heirs, for evermore. On Trinity Sunday, June 3rd, says Monstrelet, the King of England wedded the Lady Catherine at Tra, in the parish church near which he lodged. Great pomp and magnificence were displayed by him and his princes, as if he had been king of the whole world. The Archbishop of Sens went in state to bless the bed of the queen, and during the night a grand procession came to the bedside of the royal pair, bringing them wine and soup, because Henry chose in all things to comply with the ancient customs of France, and it appears this strange ceremonial was one of the usages of the royal family. The next day, after a splendid feast, where the knights of the English court proposed a succession of tournaments, he let them know that playing at fighting was not to be the amusement of his wedding, but the actual siege of Sens, where they might tilt and tourney as much as they choose. The letters written on occasion of these nuptials by Henry and his courtiers are the earliest specimens extant of English prose. The following epistle by John Euford affords to the reader as brief and comprehensive a view of affairs at that period as can possibly be presented. Worshipful Maester, I recommend me to you, and as touching tidings, the king our sovereign lord was wedded with great solemnity in the cathedral church of Troy, about midday on Trinity Sunday, and on the Tuesday suing, following, he removed towards the town of Sens, sixteen leagues thence, leading with him thither our queen and the French estate. And on the Wednesday next ensuing, was siege laid to that town, a great town and a notable. It lieth toward Burgoyne ward, and is holden strong with great number of Armagnacs. The which town is worthily besieged, for there lie at that siege two kings, two queens, Isabeau, Queen of France, and the newly married Queen of England, four dukes, with my lord of Bedford, when he cometh hither. The witch, the Duke of Bedford, on the twelfth day of June, shall lodge beside Paris, hitherward coming. And at this siege also, are lean many worthy ladies and gentlewomen, both French and English, of the which many of them began feats of arms, long time agone, but of lying at sieges now they begin first. I pray that ye will recommend me to my worshipful lord the chancellor, and to my lord the treasurer. And furthermore, will ye wit, no, that Paris, with other, is sworn to obey the king our sovereign lord, as heritor and governor of France, and so they do. And on Whitsun Monday, final peace was proclaimed in Paris, and on Tuesday was a solemn mass of Our Lady, and a solemn procession of all the great and worthy men of Paris, thanking God for this accord. And now Englishmen go into Paris oft as they will, without any safe conduct or any letting, giving leave. And Paris and all other towns, turn from the Armagnac party, make great joy and mirth every holiday, in dancing and caroling. I pray God send grace to both realms of much mirth and gladness, and give you in health much joy and prosperity long to endure. I pray that ye will vouchsafe to let this letter commend me to Abel Howitt and Bailey, and to Sir John Brockholes, whom the fair town of Vernon on Seine greeteth well also, 
and Will Alpto and Lark and all the Meni, and King Barber and his wife. Written at the siege of Sens, the sixth day of June, in haste. Sens is further than Paris thirty-four leagues, and Tra is further than Paris thirty-six leagues. Will ye say to my brother, Master Piers, that I send him a letter by the bringer hereof? Your own servant, Johann Ofort. Thus was the honeymoon of Catherine the Fair passed at sieges and leaguers. Her bridal music was the groans of France. Horror, unutterable horror, was the attendant on these nuptials, for the cruel massacre of Monterreau took place within a fortnight of the queen's espousals. Yet Catherine was no unwilling bride, for, as her brother-in-law, Philip the Good of Burgundy, expressly declared, she had passionately longed to be espoused to King Henry, and, from the moment she saw him, had constantly solicited her mother, with whom she could do anything, till her marriage took place. Not a sign of objection to the cruelties and slaughter that followed her marriage is recorded, nor did the royal beauty ever intercede for her wretched country with her newly wedded lord. Sens received Henry and Catherine within its walls, soon after the siege had commenced in form. The king and queen of England entered in great state, accompanied by the archbishop of Sens, who had a few days before joined their hands at Tra. This prelate had been expelled from his diocese by the party of the Armagnacs, but he was reinstated by Henry V, who, turning to him with a smile as they entered the cathedral, said, Now, Monsieur Archivesque, we are quits, for you gave me my wife the other day, and I restore yours to you this day. While the desperate siege of Montereau proceeded, the Queen of England and her father and mother, with their courts and households, resided at Bray-sur-Seine. Here Henry paid frequent visits to his bride. After the tragedy of Montereau, the United Courts removed to Corbel, where Queen Catherine was joined by her sister-in-law, Margaret, Duchess of Clarence, and by many noble ladies, who had come from England to pay their duty to the bride of King Henry. She was with her mother and King Charles at the camp before Maloon. But indeed, says Monstrelet, it was a sorry sight to see the King of France bereft of all his usual state and pomp. They resided, with many ladies and damsels, about a month, in a house King Henry had built for them near his tents, and at a distance from the town, that the roar of the cannon might not startle King Charles. Every day at sunrise, continues the Burgundian, and at nightfall, ten clarions, and divers other instruments, were ordered by King Henry to play for an hour, most melodiously, before the door of the King of France. The malady of the unhappy father of Catherine was soothed by music. This was evidently the military band of Henry V, the first which is distinctly mentioned in Chronicles. Henry was himself a performer on the harp from an early age. He likewise was a composer, delighting in church harmony, which he used to practice on the organ. That he found similar tastes in his royal bride is evident from an item in the issue rolls, whereby it appears he sent to England to obtain new harps for Catherine and himself, in the October succeeding his wedlock. By the hands of William Menston was paid eight pounds, thirteen shillings, four pence, for two new harps, purchased for King Henry and Queen Catherine. 
If the reader is anxious to know who was the best harp maker in London at this period, complete satisfaction can be given. For a previous document mentions another harp sent to Henry, when in France, purchase of John Boar, harp maker, London, together with several dozen harp chords and a harp case. At the surrender of Melun, the vile mother of Queen Catherine was proclaimed regent of France through the influence of her son-in-law, who considered Queen Isabeau entirely devoted to her daughter's interest. This was a preparatory step to a visit which Henry intended to make to his own country for the purpose of showing the English his beautiful bride and performing the ceremonial of her coronation. The royal personages of France and England now approached Paris in order that the king and queen of England might make their triumphal entry into that city. But Henry, not knowing how the Parisians might receive them, chose to precede his wife and take possession of the city before he ventured to trust her within its walls. Queen Catherine and her mother made their grand entry into Paris next day. Great magnificence was displayed at the arrival of the Queen of England, but it would take up too much time to relate all the rich presents that were offered to her by the citizens of Paris. The streets and houses were hung with tapestry the whole of that day, and wine was constantly running from brass cocks and in conduits through the squares, so that all persons might have it in abundance. And more rejoicings than tongue can tell were made in Paris for the peace and for the marriage of Catherine the Fair. The miserably exhausted state of France prevented Catherine from receiving any solid sum as her fortune, but she had an income of 40,000 francs, the usual revenue of the queens of France, settled on her at her marriage by her father, a few scanty installments of which proved, in reality, the only property she ever derived from her own country. This circumstance gives an exemplification, by no means uncommon in life, of the manner in which exorbitancy and pecuniary demands often defeats its own ends. Had Henry V required a more reasonable dowry with his bride, Catherine might have been reckoned among the richest of our queens, instead of being, with her high-sounding expectations, in reality, the poorest among them all. The royal pair spent their Christmas at Paris, but at the end of the festival, Henry thought it best to pay some attention to the prayer of his faithful commons, who had lately begged that he, with his gracious queen, would please to return to England, to comfort, support, and refresh them by their presence. Accordingly, Henry set out with his queen on a winter journey through France, escorted by the Duke of Bedford, at the head of six thousand men. Queen Catherine arrived at Amiens on St. Vincent's Day, and was lodged in the Hotel of Matre, Robert Lejeune, bailiff of Amiens, and many costly presents were made to her by that magistrate. The royal pair embarked at Calais, and landed at Dover, February 1st, where, observes Monstrelet, Catherine was received as if she had been an angel of God. The magnificent coronation of the queen took place as early after her landing as the 24th of February. She was led on foot from Westminster Palace to the Abbey, between two bishops, and was crowned by the hands of Archbishop Chechely on the 24th of February, 1421. It is expressly mentioned that Catherine sat on the king's bench at Westminster Hall, by Henry's side, at the coronation feast. It is worth the noting, says old Raphael Hollingshead, 
to take a view of all the goodly order and reverend dutifulness exhibited on all sides towards the new queen after the coronation was ended queen catherine was conveyed into the great hall of westminster and there sat at dinner upon her right hand sat at the end of the table the archbishop of canterbury and cardinal beaufort upon the left hand of the queen sat james i king of scotland under his canopy who was served with messes in covered silver dishes but after the aforesaid bishops by the king of scots sat the duchess of york and the countess of huntingdon the countess of kent sat under the table at the queen's feet holding a napkin the earl of march holding a sceptre in his hand kneeled on the steps of the dais at the queen's right side the earl marshal holding her other sceptre kneeled at her left the duke of gloucester was that day overseer of the feast and stood before queen catherine bareheaded sir richard neville was her cup-bearer sir james stuart sewer the lord clifford pantler in the earl of warwick's stead the lord grey of ruthen was her naperer and the lord audley her almoner instead of the earl of cambridge and ye shall understand says alderman fabian that this feast was all of fish for being february twenty fourth lent was entered upon and nothing of meat was there saving brawn served with mustard among the fish dishes of the first course fabian mentions especially dead eels stewed the table ornaments called subtleties were contrived to express by their mottoes a political meaning in the first course was an image of st catherine the queen's patron saint disputing with the doctors holding a label in her right hand on which was written madame la reine and a pelican held an answer in her bill to this effect in this sign the king great joy will bring and all his people she madame the queen will content the second course of this fish banquet was jelly colored with columbine flowers white pottage or cream of almonds bream of the sea conjure soles chevin or chub barrel with roach smelt fried crayfish or lobster leitch damasked with the king's motto or word flourished un sans plus lamprey fresh baked flambe flourished with the scutcheon royal and therein three crowns of gold plated with fleur-de-lis and flowers of chamomile all wrought of confections confectionery and a subtlety named a panther panther with an image of st catherine having a wheel in her hand with this motto the queen my daughter in this island has with good reason renown the third course was likewise of fish a leech called the white leech flourished with hawthorn leaves and red haws dates in compost mottled cream carp turbo tench perch with grudgeon fresh sturgeon with wilkes porpoise roasted which fabian because the dish was not barbarous enough in itself calls porporus then there was crevice d'eau crabfish prawns eels roasted with lamprey and a march pane garnished with diverse figures of angels among which was set an image of st barnabas holding this posy giving hopes of peace as well as that royal wedlock would be happy it is written it may be seen and is in marriage pure no strifes endure and lastly there was a subtlety named a tigre looking in a mirror and a man on horseback clean armed 
holding a tiger's wealth in his hands, with this motto, per four sans raison, j'ai pris cette beast. By force of arms, and not by that of reason, I have captured this beast. The small tiger and the motto meant an uncivil allusion to Catherine's young brother, the dauphin. The figure made show of throwing mirrors at the great tiger, which held in his paws this reason, label with motto. The sight of this mirror tames wild beasts of terror. The only instance of active benevolence ever recorded of Catherine the Fair took place at this coronation feast, when the queen publicly interceded with her monarch bridegroom for the liberation of his royal guest and prisoner, James I of Scotland, then at table. This suit seems to have been granted, on condition that James should bear arms under Henry V's banner, for the purpose of completing the subjugation of France. Catherine likewise took in hand the management of the love affairs of the accomplished king of Scotland, and through her agency, hopes were held out to the gallant James, that if he gave satisfaction to King Henry in the ensuing campaign, he need not despair of possessing the beautiful Joanna Beaufort, with whom he was so desperately enamored. Stowe affirms that this lady was betrothed to King James before the festivals of Catherine's coronation ended. Catherine presented Sir James Stuart with the gilt cuff with which he served her as sewer at the coronation. After the festivals had concluded, the queen was left by Henry in her palace of Westminster till Palm Sunday, when she removed to Windsor, expecting to meet the king, who had promised to pass Easter with her at the castle. Henry, however, found it impossible to return from the north, whither he had gone on progress. He therefore sent for the queen to Leicester, where they celebrated the spring festival. They then continued the progress together, visiting the shrines of all northern saints. Henry was so superfluous in his devotions, and so stern in suppressing all the satirical writings of the Lollards against the clergy, that the reformers gave him the sobriquet of the Prince of the Priests. The object of the king in this progress was to prepare his people for the extraordinary supplies he meant to request at the ensuing parliament. For this purpose, he harangued the corporations of every town through which he passed, and showing them his fair queen as a proof of the progress he had made in the conquest of France, he explained to them, with great eloquence, what forces and funds it would take to complete it. Henry proceeded no further northward than the shrine of St. John of Beverly. While he was offering at that popular saint, he left his queen at the royal castle of Pontefract, that frightful fortress where her sister Isabella's first husband, Richard II, had met his mysterious death, and where that sister's second husband, and her own cousin German, the poet Duke of Orléans, was then enduring a strict captivity. It may be inferred that Queen Catherine was permitted to see this near relative, or Henry would scarcely have taken her to his place of abode. Catherine returned to Westminster in May, 1421, when the king met his parliament. Soon after, the disastrous news arrived of the defeat and death at the fatal field of Bogey, of that stainless knight, the king's best beloved brother, Thomas, Duke of Clarence. Henry had not intended to leave England till after the birth of the heir, which the situation of his young queen led him to expect. But now, burning to avenge Clarence, he hurried to France, June 10th, leaving his Catherine in the care of the Duke of Bedford. He laid one especial command on his wife at his parting, which was not to let his heir be born at Windsor. 
Our chroniclers lead us to suppose that the king himself had examined the aspects of the planets, according to the vain rules of art. For the expression always is, that he prophesied the calamities of Henry the Sixth. Now, if it was a marvel that Saul was among the prophets, it would be one still greater to find our gallant Plantagenet king, assuming the prophet's mantle. Unless, indeed, during his education at Oxford, he had, among other trash then considered learning, acquired the art of casting horoscopes. Be this as it may, Henry, from some mysterious reason, deemed that destiny lowered darkly over the royal towers of Windsor, during the month when he expected Catherine to bring forth her firstborn. It is certain, however, that Catherine disobeyed her royal lord, either from want of belief in astrology, or because she chose that her child should first see the light in that stately fortress, where his great and fortunate ancestor, Edward III, was born. On the 6th of December, 1421, the son of Catherine came into the world, which assuredly proved most disastrous to him. When the news was brought to Henry V, that Catherine had brought him an heir, he was prosecuting the siege of Mew. He eagerly inquired, where the boy was born, and being answered, at Windsor. The king repeated with a sigh to his chamberlain, Lord Fitzhugh, the following oracular stave, which certainly does little honor to his talents as an impromptu versifier. I, Henry, born at Monmouth, shall small time reign and much get, but Henry of Windsor shall long reign and lose all, but as God will, so be it. No regular English dower was at this time settled on Catherine, but it is evident that the revenues of the unfortunate Queen Dowager were confiscated for her use, as her maids were paid from that source. Her damsels were Joanna Belknap, Joanna Troutbeck, and Joanna Kersey, besides Agnes, who has no surname. These ladies, says Henry, the demoiselles of our dear companion, are to receive ten livres apiece out of the funds of Queen Joanne. Guillemot, damsel of the bedchamber to his said dear companion, is to receive one hundred shillings from the monies of Queen Joanna. Not very honest of the valiant Henry, to pay his wife's servants from another person's money. These gifts are declared to be in consideration of the costages and expenses the beloved demoiselles are incurring, by following the said dear queen and companion to meet me, King Henry, in France. Likewise, an annuity of twenty livres per annum, for that dear doctor of philosophy, Maester Johann Boyers, because of his office of confessor to Queen Catherine. The revenues of the unfortunate dowager was likewise taxed, for the maintenance of Catherine's guest, Jacqueline of Hainaut, to the enormous amount of one hundred pounds per month. Henry directs the treasurer of his exchequer to pay to his dearly beloved cousin, Dame Jacquet, Duchess of Holland, this sum from the profits of the dower of Joanna, late Queen of England. Before Catherine left England, her infant was baptized by the name of his father, the Duchess Jacqueline standing godmother. The Duke of Bedford and Cardinal Beaufort were the other sponsors. Early in the same spring, Catherine wrote her warlike lord a most loving letter, declaring that she earnestly longed to behold him once more. This epistle was answered by a permission to join him in France. End of section 8
Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.